Now let's proceed with a more detailed analysis of Warren's philosophy of investing from a business perspective. We'll take a business and value it the way Warren would to determine at what price it would be an attractive acquisition. For now, let's keep it simple, ignoring matters of taxation and inflation. Let's say Warren develops a childhood dream of becoming the richest man in America and at the age of 17 decides to start a business. Young Warren, ever commercially minded, has saved up a whopping $35 from his Washington Post paper route. What should he do with it? Spend it on girls? No, Warren will start a business and make some more money. He finds an old working pinball machine and buys it for $35. Now that he has the first asset of his business, he realizes he needs to put it someplace where people will use it. The guy at the pool hall has four machines of his own and doesn't want Warren's in there taking his customers away. Realizing that the pool hall has a monopoly on the pinball types, Warren gets depressed. Then he notices that the pinball types all have crew cuts, a type of haircut administered by a guy named Sarge. A trip to Sarge's reveals two things, an absence of a pinball machine and an abundance of pinball types waiting around for haircuts. Warren strikes his first joint venture, promising Sarge 20% of all revenues. The next day, he finds $10 in the machine and gives Sarge $2, pockets $8, and realizes that this is going to be a very profitable venture. All right, you MBA types, if young Warren's pinball business keeps making him $10 a day for the rest of the year, and Warren locks Sarge into a 10-year exclusive lease, and after the 10 years, the building's torn down, what is young Warren's business worth today? Good question, but the answer isn't exactly clear. Let's look at some of the economics of the business. First, Warren's cash and property assets are worth a total of $43, $35 for the machine and eight retained earnings, and he has no liabilities. But would you sell it for its net worth? No because you believe that it can generate $8 a day in profits for the next 10 years. Sarge works seven days a week, so the business will take in $2,920 a year. That would be eight times 365 days. If you offered Warren the shareholder's equity book value of $43 for the business, Warren, being nobody's fool, would tell you to go pound sand. Then what is it worth, you might ask? Warren says it's worth the present value of the revenue stream of $2,920 per year, times 10 years, or $29,200, plus the interest you'd get investing all that accumulating cash at 8%. So the real question is, what's a future $44,516.86 worth today? You should ask yourself, if interest rates are 8%, how much money would I need to invest today to end up with $44,516.86 in 10 years? You whip out your BA35 solar supercalculator, punch in the years N equals 10, interest rate 
percentage I equals 8% and future value FV equals $44,516.86. Push the Calculate CPT button and the present value PV button and voila, you'd have to invest $20,619.92. And what's that number tell you exactly? It means you'd be earning 8% on your money if you paid him the $20,619.92 for the pinball business. An okay rate of return, except that AAA corporate bonds are paying 10%. To earn 10%, you'll have to pay less for the business. Punch those numbers in the calculator and you'll see that if you pay $17,163.17, you'll be getting a 10% return on your money. You'll get back your principal in full plus $27,353.69 in earnings for that grand total of $44,516.86. That's an effective annual compounding rate of return of 10%. Pay more, and you're speculating that the business will do better. Pay less, and you'll be getting a greater return on your money. You know in advance what you can pay to get the return you want. You have taken a business perspective. You are not caught up on Warren becoming the pinball baron of North America. Leave that to the Wall Street folks. What you are interested in is the certainty of the annual rate of return. Let's think about this from another perspective. Before he spends a dime, the cab driver who buys a new cab figures out what the cab is going to cost versus what it is going to earn. But a guy who goes out and buys a 62 Corvette because he thinks it'll go up in price has no idea what the rate of return on his investment will be. The cab driver has taken a business perspective to analyze the merits of his investment. The Corvette buyer is speculating and letting greed and hopeful thinking dictate his actions. And so it is with the stock market, where fractional interests in individual businesses are auctioned daily on the motivation of both business perspective investing and of greedy speculation. On the business side are large corporations seeking to buy whole companies so they can add to their earnings base. On the speculative side are the individual investors and many mutual funds buying not on the basis of a sound business reasoning, but on the basis of hope and greed. It is speculation that can send securities to spectacular heights and then to depressing, fear-motivated lows. That's one reason why stocks are not always sold at a price indicative of the company's true worth. Case in point, RJR Nabisco. In 1988, it was selling at $45 per share, earning $5.92 a share and carrying little debt. It had a long history of spectacular earnings from the sale of tobacco. However, the public had labeled the company a pariah because of the lawsuits by people who claimed they had cancer caused by smoking. The stock market saw this and kept the stock price low. RJR management saw an opportunity. 
they realized they could borrow the billions they needed to buy up the existing shares at $75, take over the company, then pay off the loans with the company's free cash flow. As it turned out, leveraged buyout firm KKR offered more money and took over RJR. But it remains the perfect case of a fear-motivated public overestimating a liability. The people, motivated by a business perspective, saw the value and were willing to pay a price far in excess of where the stock market had been valuing it. In Warren Buffett's world of business perspective investing, you really need to know only two things, what to buy and at what price. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? The problem is that Wall Street functions basically as salesmen working for commission. Obviously, they want to get the highest price for goods they are selling. If a stockbroker is selling you a new issue, you know immediately it has been fully priced by the investment house and is no bargain. If it's an issue the brokerage research department is backing, then it's the herd mentality. As the stock prices rise, the enthusiasm of the broker will increase as well. It's up two points today, the broker will warn. Better hurry up. The train is pulling out of the station. Warren ignores this kind of talk. As I said, he remains focused. But then, how does he determine which are the right companies to buy and at what price? To understand, we must first take a closer look at the magic of compounding. It is Warren's secret weapon, often overlooked by those who are trying to understand his strategies. Maybe as a child you were told that if you had one penny and doubled it in a year, you would have two pennies. And if you doubled that the next year, you'd have four pennies. But if you kept the process going, you'd have $1.3 million in the 27th year. Sounds magical, doesn't it? But it isn't, because you're seeing a compounding rate of 100% per year. Doubling your money each year is unrealistic. But it's astonishing the difference just a few percentage points of compounding makes over a long period of time. If you invested $100,000 tax-free at an annual rate of 5%, it's worth $432,000 in 30 years. But jump to 10% and it's worth more than $1.7 million. Get 15% on your money and $100,000 becomes more than $6.6 .6 million. Get 20% and it grows to 23 million in the same 30 years. At Berkshire Hathaway, Warren has been able to increase the underlying net worth of his company at an average annual compounding rate of 23.8% for the last 32 years, which is phenomenal. For Warren, compounding reigns supreme. Why? Because a compounding return is different from what is normally paid on passive investments, such as your basic corporate bond. Lend General Motors $1,000 for five years at 8%, and you get back $80 per year. That's all. Further, the IRS takes out income tax. 
But think how great it would be if GM added 8% to your principal of $1,000 each year, allowing you to compound and skip the personal income tax levy until the very end. That's the kind of advantage the right stock will allow. With bonds, the IRS won't let the investor get away with this. They'll send a bill and each year interest is earned. But as Warren Buffett sees it, the IRS has missed one very important point. Warren thinks of stock as a kind of equity bond with varying interest where the return equity is not subject to personal income tax unless it's paid out as a dividend to the investor. In other words, if a company reinvests its earnings, using them to increase the value of your stock, then your money has been compounded without you being subjected to personal income tax at least till you sell your stock, and that could be never. Had you invested in Berkshire Hathaway 32 years ago, you would have seen your $500 stock become a $48,600 stock, a compounded return of 23% per year. Of course, the company couldn't send you the 23% or the IRS would come to your door. But then again, you probably couldn't allocate the capital as well as Warren does, so better to leave your money with Berkshire Hathaway. Of course, when you do sell your investment, the tax collector demands a cut of your capital gain. But when that happens is up to you, and in the meantime, you are collecting your 23% free from personal income taxes. The price you pay for a stock is critical to successful compounding. Many investment analysts believe price is not so much a concern if you purchase a good company and plan to hold stock for a long time. Nothing could be more wrong. Consider this. In 1987, Philip Morris traded between $6 and $10. Ten years later, it traded at $44. If you bought it at $6, your compounded rate of return was about 22%. If you paid $10, it was far lower, close to 15%. And earlier we saw what a great difference 5% can make when money is compounding. A final thought on compounding. Warren Buffett is famous for driving older model cars. He used to drive a VW Beetle. People attribute it to a lack of interest in material items. What they failed to see were the consequences of Warren's spending habits. An automobile that costs $20,000 today will be worth nothing in 10 years. And an investment of the same amount will be worth about $158,000. And in 30 years, almost $10 million. Too much for Warren to throw away on a new car. Now it's time to consider just what kind of business you want to own. This is the key question, because in Warren's world, you must first know what you want to buy before you look at the price. From famed money manager Philip Fisher and financial empresario Charlie Munger, 
Warren Buffett learned that certain companies with particular economics had expanding value. And even though such companies might keep selling below their intrinsic value, if their profitability kept improving, eventually their stock price would rise to reflect the improved economics of the business. Warren therefore looks to buy companies whose value keeps expanding, regardless of whether the market price reflects that increase at any given time. A case in point is General Foods. Its per share earnings kept rising from 1979, when Warren started buying the stock, through 1985, when Philip Morris bought them out. As earnings rose, the intrinsic value rose. Warren held the stock through thick and thin, knowing the expanding value would eventually be reflected in the price. Regardless of where the winds of finance blew from 1979 to 85, Warren was able to buy General Foods at a market price that in relationship to its earnings would allow him a return of at least 13% and often near 20%. Remember, Warren considers the per-share earnings retained by the company to be his return. Warren's only concern was whether or not the business nature of General Foods was such that the earnings would continue to grow, thus protecting and expanding his estimated rate of return. Warren had by this time rejected the contention of his mentor Benjamin Graham that it was good to purchase everything and anything that could be defined as a bargain. To Warren, mediocre businesses without predictable earnings were boats to nowhere. Mediocre businesses tended to remain mediocre. Buying them at a bargain didn't make up for that. By sticking with expanding companies such as Geico Insurance and the Washington Post, Warren has seen annual returns of 17% and 18% compounding for 24 years. One of the great keys to Warren's success is that he has figured out a method for determining whether he was dealing with one of those rare, excellent businesses that would allow him to reap a bountiful harvest year after year, or with a mediocre business whose inherent economics would cement him to mediocre results. To facilitate his thinking, Warren divided the business world into two separate categories. The basic commodity-type business, which he found consistently produced inferior results, versus the excellent business, which possesses what Warren calls a consumer monopoly. He discovered that the underlying economics of the consumer monopolies were the most profitable for their owners and that as a group they tended to outperform the market as a whole. But first things first, let's look at the commodity type business and the subtleties that make it an undesirable investment when compared to the enterprise that has a consumer monopoly working in its favor. When we say commodity type business, we mean a business that sells a product whose price is the single most important motivating factor in the consumer's buy decision. The most simple and obvious commodity type businesses that we deal with in our daily lives are textile manufacturers, producers of raw foodstuffs such as corn and rice, steel producers, gas and oil companies, 
the lumber industry, and paper manufacturers. All these companies sell a commodity for which there is considerable competition in the marketplace. The price is the single most important motivating factor for the consumer making a buy decision. One buys gasoline on the basis of price, not on the basis of brand, even though all the oil companies would like us to believe that one brand is better than the other. Price is the dictating factor. The same goes for such goods as concrete, lumber, bricks, and memory and processing chips for your computer, though Intel is trying to change this by giving its processing chips brand name recognition. Let's face it, it really doesn't matter where the corn you buy in the store comes from, as long as it is corn and it tastes like corn. The intense level of competition leads to very competitive markets and in the process, very low profit margins. In commodity type businesses, the low cost provider wins. This is because the low cost provider has a greater freedom to set prices. Costs are lower, therefore profit margins are higher. It's a simple concept, but it has complicated implications because to be the low cost producer usually means that the company must constantly make manufacturing improvements to keep the business competitive. This requires additional capital expenditures, which tend to eat up retained earnings, which could have been spent on new product development or acquiring new enterprises, which would increase the value of the company. The scenario usually works like this. Company A makes improvements in its manufacturing process, which lowers its cost of production, which increases its profit margins. Company A then lowers the price of its product in an attempt to take a greater market share from companies B, C, and D. Companies B, C, and D start to lose business to company A and respond by making the same improvements to the manufacturing process as company A. Companies B, C, and D then lower their prices to compete with company A and in the process destroy any increase in company A's profit margins that the improvements in the manufacturing process created. And then the vicious cycle repeats itself. There are occasions on which demand for a service or a product outstrips supply. When Hurricane Andrew smashed into Florida and destroyed thousands of homes, the cost of sheet plywood shot through the roof. At times like this, all the producers and sellers make substantial profits. But increase in demand is usually met with increase in supply. And when demand slackens, the excess increase in supply drives prices and profit margins down again. Additionally, a commodity-type business is entirely dependent upon the quality and intelligence of management to create a profitable enterprise. If management lacks a foresight or engages in wasting the company's precious assets by allocating resources unwisely, the business could lose its advantage as the low-cost producer and face the possibility of competitive attack and financial ruin. Commodity-type businesses sometimes try to create product distinction by bombarding the buyer with advertising in which the manufacturer attempts to get the buyer to believe their product is better than the competition's. In some instances, there are considerable product modifications to keep ahead of the competition. The problem, however, 
is that no matter what is done to a commodity type product, if the choice the consumer makes is motivated by price alone, the company that is the low cost producer will be the winner, and the rest end up struggling. As an example of poor investment qualities of the commodity type business, Warren loves to use Burlington Industries, which manufactures textiles, a commodity type product. In 1964, Burlington Industries had sales of 1.2 billion, and the stock sold for an adjusted for splits price of around $30 a share. Between 1964 and 1985, the company made capital expenditures of about $3 billion, or about $100 a share, on improvements to become more efficient and therefore more profitable. The majority of the capital expenditures were for cost improvements and expansion of operations. And even though in 1985 the company reported sales of 2.8 billion, it had lost sales volume in inflation-adjusted dollars. It was also getting far lower returns on sales and equity than it did in 1964. The stock in 1985 sold for $34 a share, or a little better than it did in 1964. Twenty-one years of business operations and three billion in shareholder money spent, and still the stock had given its shareholders only a modest appreciation. The managers at Burlington are some of the most able in the textile industry, but the industry is the problem. Poor economics, which developed from excess competition, resulted in substantial overcapacity in the entire textile industry. Substantial overcapacity means price competition, which means lower profit margins, which means lower profits, which means a poorly performing stock and disappointed shareholders. Warren is fond of saying that when management with an excellent reputation meets a business with a poor reputation, it is usually the business's reputation that remains intact. Identifying a commodity type business is not that difficult. Look for low profit margins, the result of competitive pricing and low returns on equity. Since the average return on equity for an American corporation is approximately 12%, anything below that may indicate the presence of poor business economics created by commodity type markets and pricing. Other features of commodity type businesses. Absence of any brand name loyalty, presence of multiple producers, substantial excess production capacity in the industry, and erratic profits. In commodity type businesses, profitability is almost entirely dependent upon management's ability to efficiently utilize tangible assets. Any time profitability of a company is largely dependent upon the business's ability to efficiently utilize its tangible assets, such as plant and equipment, and not as much on intangible assets as patents, copyrights, and brand names, you should suspect that the company in question is of the commodity type. Remember, if price is the single most important motivating factor in the purchase of a product. Then you are most likely dealing with a commodity type business. As such, the company probably will present you at best with only average results over the long term.
As we know, Warren is looking only for companies with great economics, companies for which he can reasonably predict future income. Throughout his investment career, he has been able to find a number of these companies. He has discovered that they all were selling a product or service that created what he calls a consumer monopoly. The toll bridge is a classic form of the consumer monopoly. If you, the consumer, want to cross a river without swimming or using a boat, you very likely have to cross on a bridge. And to use the bridge, you may have to pay the toll. The toll bridge has a kind of monopoly on crossing the river at that particular place. The same can be said when a large town has only one newspaper. If you want to advertise in the paper, you have to pay the advertising rate the paper is charging, or you don't advertise. This consumer monopoly gives the toll bridge or newspaper a greater freedom to price, which means greater profits for the shareholders. Now in this section, we'll look at how to identify the exceptional business that has a consumer monopoly working in its favor. This is the what Warren likes to buy portion of the program. And what Warren wants to buy are companies that have products or services that create consumer monopolies. Warren has developed a conceptual test to determine the presence of such a consumer monopoly. He likes to ask this question. If he had access to billions of dollars, which he does, and his pick of the top 50 managers in the country, which he does, could he start a business and successfully compete with the business in question? If the answer is a resounding no, then the company in question is protected by some kind of strong consumer monopoly. In Warren's world, the real test of strength of a consumer monopoly is how much damage a competitor could do even if he didn't care about making money. Is it possible to compete with the Wall Street Journal? You could spend billions and still not put a dent in its readership. Could you start a chewing gum company and compete with Wrigley? Several have tried and several have failed. How about that Hershey chocolate bar? And what about Coca-Cola? Driving in the mountains of Indonesia last year, I pulled over to the roadside stand to get something to drink. At this small stand in the middle of nowhere in a country with almost no signs of Americana, there was only one selection of soda, Coca-Cola. Just think about Coca-Cola for a moment. Think about how many places sell it. Every gas station, movie theater, supermarket, restaurant, fast food joint, bar, hotel, and sporting arena sells Coca-Cola. In every office building in America, you can bet that somewhere there's a Coca-Cola machine waiting to take your money. Coca-Cola is such a popular drink that stores and restaurants have to carry it. They have to carry it. They have to carry it because if they don't, they'll lose sales. Can you name me one other brand name product that every one of these vendors has to carry? Try now to compete with Coca-Cola and you would need the capital base of two General Motors and you probably would still fail. Talk about a consumer monopoly that is bomb-proof. I personally have consumed thousands of servings of the beverage. How about you? How about your children? 
What about a Marlboro cigarette? Ever try to convince a Marlboro smoker to switch brands? My personal test for a consumer monopoly is to ask this question. If somebody gave me the rights to a particular brand name like Marlboro or Wrigley, or the rights to the name and secret formula of Coca-Cola, would the investment bankers at Solomon Brothers or Goldman Sachs consent to raise the billions I'd need to start production? If the answer is yes, I know I've got a winner. If one were the owner of the only water company in town, one could make a ton of money. The only catch is that the populace long ago had the common sense to regulate the water industry. The same can be said for most utility companies. Great businesses, but regulations keep the owners from obtaining superior results. What you want is an unregulated water company. The problem is that when companies like this are recognized by the investment community, the prices they sell at are usually astronomically high. Since the price you pay determines the rate of return you get, you will, in effect, be getting a smaller rate of return. So the trick is to find the one that the rest of the world hasn't identified yet. You might say you are looking for a disguised water company. Lawrence N. Bloomberg thought that one of the reasons companies with strong consumer monopolies were so profitable was that they did not have to rely heavily on investments in land, plant, and equipment. Such fixed charges and property taxes loom large in commodity-type businesses. In contrast, the wealth of companies with consumer monopolies is principally in the form of intangible assets, such as the secret formula to Coca-Cola or the brand name Marlboro. Companies that benefit from consumer monopolies because of their large cash flows are often nearly debt-free. Companies like Wrigley, maker of chewing gum, and UST, maker of chewing tobacco, have little or no debt on their balance sheets. This gives them a great deal of freedom in pursuing other profitable ventures or purchasing their own shares. Additionally, they are often manufacturers of low-tech products, which don't require sophisticated manufacturing plants. Also, since there is little competition biting at their heels, they can get longer use out of their manufacturing facilities. Not having to compete means being free of the costs of constantly retooling and building new plants. General Motors, a manufacturer of automobiles, a price-sensitive, commodity-type product has to spend billions of dollars to retool and build new production facilities just to get a new model car to market. And it's a product that may stay competitive for only a few years before GM has to go back to the drawing board and build again. But think of General Electric, the company that Thomas Edison helped start, and the profits it made electrifying the planet. You sell a country the know-how to make electricity and the products to wire it up, and then you sell it electric appliances, light bulbs, power tools, and refrigerators. It's like Gillette giving away the razor in order to get the customer to buy the razor blades. GE to this day is one of America's most powerful commercial enterprises. 
its power is derived in part from the huge amount of capital it acquired in the early part of this century when it was the only game in town.